I will talk to you of art. Yes. For there is nothing else. Are you all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Come along quietly or not. Well, you can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere. Some artists will bait a hook and let you bite upon it. And now, without further ado... Hey, Frank, what is this? It's an evite to our Halloween party. I don't want to do that again. It's humiliating. Guys, we can't give up on Halloween. It's a magical night where women dress slutty and drink too much, where we can hide our bodies in bulky costumes. We've got to keep trying. But we suck. Yes, but anything can happen on Halloween. <laughs> Hello, folks. This is another episode of Planet Shivers Podcast, and I am Albert Shivers. It's October, it's Halloween time, and we're going to be pumping out episodes like China is pumping out cheap masks. On this episode, Luke and Andrew are back, my two favorite movie experts. They're back on the podcast to talk classic horror movies and mention a couple of new ones they like, which are far and few in between. But... We had a great conversation, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Before we get to the rest of the show, though, just want to let you all know that my Insomnia Art series is going very well. I appreciate everybody who's checking it out. If you don't know what it is, pretty much with the nudge of some friends, I decided to do like a little bit of an art tutorial kind of series, my own version of a Bob Ross show. About 20 minutes each, you watch me work on a chunk of one of my ink drawings. Eventually, I want to start integrating collages into the show. But for me, it's actually been really fun, more fun than I expected it to be. Because I talk about the art, I get to talk about what inspired me to do the art, which is something I don't normally enjoy talking about. But in this format, I actually do. So I think it's going to work out well. I'm going to keep doing them, pumping them out. A couple a week is my goal. Keep everybody entertained out there. And for the YouTube version of this podcast, you'll be seeing the silent version of some of these episodes as well. In case you don't want to hear me go on and on. A lot of times, like with my art, I keep the meaning and thing close to the vest because legitimately... I'm interested in what other people see in it. That is endlessly more fascinating to me because I have had people come up to me about certain pieces of art with a whole other perspective that I never would have thought of. So normally I didn't go too far and too crazy about explaining my meaning. And I also, it always felt egocentric to me. You know, I enjoyed hearing it from others more. But I'm finding my own. I'm getting into the groove. You know, it's you think about it, a lot of artists also have to be salesmen. And I just don't have that that drive in me to push someone to buy something. Like, ah, come on, buy it. You know, you want to buy it. Blah, blah, blah. It just isn't in me. If they like it, I'm happy. But, you know, I'm working it. I'm working it. We're going to get, it's all going to be fine. On the topic of commerce and art, I'm going to have art t-shirts coming very soon. Um, I'm working with designs right now. 
to see which one would look the best on what kind of shirt and what color. What I would like to have available is t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and hoodies. I love hoodies. I always, this is the perfect time of year for hoodies. And I'm looking at how some of my art is going to look on a hoodie. But I think we're going to start out with t-shirts, starting out with fun t-shirts, fun t-shirts. So that'll be good. That'll be real good. Also, today, earlier today, just for the sake of conversation, I was doing some drawing, and um, where I'm at right now, there's cable. So I was flicking through channels, and I seen the Matthew Broderick Godzilla on, and I was like, what the hell, putting on. And man, it's rough. Now, I was eight years old when the Broderick Godzilla came out. And I was all about it. Like, I loved it. But I was eight. And I had the toy. And he fought classic Godzilla. It was great. I, I had the, the VHS. Watched it over and over and over and over and over. But now like, I'm watching it now. And I don't know if the fact that it's on like an HD TV and an HD channel that somehow really screws with the CGI effects of 1998, that could be it. But I'm watching this and it's just rough. Like it, it is a big budget horror movie with people who are not doing the best job. Like Hank Azaria is like the highlight and his, his, the woman who plays his girlfriend in the movie, it's like the highlight for me. But like Broderick is rough. Like he's not, He's got no business around monsters. I don't know. I can't explain why. But looking at him, he just has no business around Godzilla. I don't know what it is. But, yeah, sometimes rewatches are disappointing. That's the moral of that story. Well, with all that said, I think it's time to get to the episode. Again, Luke and Andrew are back on Planet Shivers. They took an express rocket to get here. Just to do this episode, so we talk about classic horror movies. We Vincent Price, Carnival of Souls, Lon Chaney, you know the Universal monsters. We get into all of that, and then we dabble a little bit on new movies that we like. I think that the three of us, our heads are all pretty much in old horror movies, classic horror movies, but. There are new ones, at least speaking for myself, there are new ones that I really, really enjoy. I don't think they're all as formulaic as you would think looking at it from the outside. So let's get to this episode. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you on the back end. We go so crazy. We kiss each other, get into vans, black out. I mean, I'm engaged, but not on Halloween. Alright folks, I am here once again with Luke and Andrew. I'm so excited that they're back and have become regulars on the show. It's awesome. And uh, just, you know, just me personally, uh, uh, Luke, I won't speak for you, but uh, I would just like to thank everybody who's uh, listening right now for making it through what I'm sure was a huge rant by Mr. Al here. I mean, I don't know what it was about <laughs> this week, but uh, uh, I mean, what, what, what was about, uh, some radio station you discovered or 
you know, some, you know, song They'll where the... They'll have to wait and where, see. Yeah, where, 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 where the singer used to be a I get myself or, all jacked you know. up before I sit down to record uh, the openings, uh, just so I have something to rant about. Uh, 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 how about how bologna is round and bread is square? I mean, that, I mean that's something. It would, because the bologna hangs over the edges of the bread. <laughs> exactly. What am I supposed to do with that extra bologna, Andrew? Uh, 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 how about how many looks it takes to get to the Tootsie Roll Center of Tootsie Roll? Uh, that would be... No, uh, I already know that. I know it was it was I, a girl who I met down in New York. She told me she was a great liquor, and it's it's two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand. Yeah. Oh, so the world does know, folks. The world does know, and there were no owls around. So. No owls. A one, a two, a three, a three. So now I'm going to grab the wheel. And um, Luke, um, last we seen each other. Was that my art show? How how did you like the art show? Uh, I loved it very much, and that is going to sound very peculiar coming from me. Not because I'm you know not a fan of you or you know art in general, but you know I've never been to an art show of any kind, not that I can remember. And you know I've never been the biggest fan of jazz, which again is not to say that I hate jazz or anything. It's just right, it, right. Not, not something I've ever looked into. So for something that was brand new to me, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience and I felt it opened my eye to a different medium of self-expression that I was previously much more unfamiliar with than I realized. And it helped me get more insight into your thought processes and, you know, what makes you tick. Just, you know, just looking at your work and going, huh, you know, like that, that is, I, you know, the patterns that I'm noticing from one picture to the next one and trying to you know connect them and you know and how the stories that you try to tell with your pictures and all while trying not to sound like one of those snobby critics that are trying to find uh, dive in to find something that's not there <laughs> so yeah it was i thoroughly enjoyed the experience and i highly recommend it even if you are not into jazz or art shows check it out i think you'd be surprised it's you know, you have nothing there is nothing harmful about it. I think you'll get something positive out of it. Nice. I'll um I'll give you your money after the show. How much do you pay you? So our topic for today, being that it is Halloween time, is classic Hollywood horror films. So that term right off the bat can be can really throw a wide net over yeah. movies. Yeah. So. What, in your guys' opinions, what's a classic horror film? What would you, what era maybe, or what fi- examples of some films? Okay, uh, it, to, to go off of what you were saying about you know the wide net that it casts, I, uh, first of all, it, you could say it depends on the person, but I haven't encountered anybody like this personally, but I've heard of people who have had this problem where they say, uh, I love horror movies and somebody else some snob usually says all horror movies are bad and you say well what about such and such a movie from this era and the the hater retorts oh that doesn't count that's a psychological thriller exactly okay. and, and uh, it seems like uh, the genres are been expanding all into their own like little subgenres sub, subgenres exactly like you don't have like just the horror genre anymore. There's horror, uh, thriller, mystery, yeah. uh, psychological thriller. 
You know, it's no longer drama. It's romantic drama or comedy. Yeah. It's family comedy. Or, you know, it's you know, like everybody, everything has its own little, you know, dark comedy. This. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, and, and that's why, you know, it's so uh, broad now. Yes. Yeah. So, like, a movie, let's, let's use an easy example mm-hmm. and say, like, a movie like um, Rosemary's Baby, which did mm-hmm. cross over. Yes. For a horror movie. Yes. So, to me, like, in my mind, that's just a horror film. Mm-hmm. Now, have you guys found that that movie may get, um, like, its genre shifted on it? I think, I, I, yes, I think that it is one of those movies that, you know, some people could easily box as a psychological thriller because even though there are definitely supernatural elements to the film, it, def- it still has uh, a very, dare I say, Hitchcockian mood to it. Like, mm-hmm. it's because the supernatural elements are downplayed and they could have been easily taken out of the film altogether because mm-hmm. at its core, it's a story about a mother trying to protect you know, her pregnancy from, yeah. these, from this cult. cult. So, but, um, but that being said, I still think it works on both fronts. I still think it works as a psychological thriller and a supernatural horror. Mm-hmm. There is nothing wrong with a movie being mixed genres. Some of the best movies ever made are mixed genres. Like, mm-hmm. The Princess Bride isn't just romantic comedy. It's also a swashbuckling action-adventure film and a fantasy. Mm-hmm. The first Terminator movie is horror and film noir and action sci-fi action-adventure. So... Um, but uh, in, in regard to classics, when I think classics personally, like e- even though they are not the first by a long shot, the first movies I think of are the black and white universal golden age from the early sound era from the 30s up into the mid-50s, starting with Todd Browning's Dracula and probably ending with uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay. Uh, because... Even though you know they're not the earliest horror films, there were plenty of horror films all the way as far back as the silent era. They're the horror films that I think pretty much set the groundwork that all subsequent horror films have been compared to. Like, if if it, you know any modern horror film reminds you of those films, you know, if it remi- if it channels Bela Lugosi as Dracula, uh, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, Lon Chaney as the Wolfman, whatever. If it channels those, it is a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, those are the ones that the critics tend to hate. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I, I agree with uh, Luke there. That's kind of like why those classic uh, horror, uh, uh, you know, the Frankensteins, Wolfman, Dracula, that's what I consider, uh, you know, uh, early classic uh, horror genre. I, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, as... Uh, like there are people who uh, consider uh, Alfred Hitchcock you know, so, some of his stuff can be uh, th- uh, thriller but you know some of it you know like Psycho you know can be considered horror but then it can be considered thriller like I don't consider right. Rear Window a horror movie I, right. uh, yeah uh, you know it you know it has you know, it's suspenseful. It's uh, it's uh, mystery. You know, you know, it, it, you know, is he do? Did he do it? Did he not? Um, but I don't consider horror though. 
there's a difference between something that induces suspense and keeps you on the edge of your seat, like will they catch the person, will, will they do it, are they safe, and something that induces terror, like oh my god, I'm afraid to look at over my shoulder, or I'm, I'm frozen, like you could hear a pin drop in the mm-hmm. theater. They're similar, but they're not quite the same. So of those of those classic horror movies, mm-hmm. you know, so we you mentioned you guys mentioned the Universal films, and whatever else existed around it. Do you guys? What do you think would is like what an important one? Is there one amongst that lot? There is to me. So I'm curious to hear from you guys if there's one amongst that crew of movies that stands out as something that then became this vein through horror as it continued. Uh, there are two I can think of that, oddly enough, came out in that time period, but neither of which is a universal property. Okay. Um, the first one, and, and both of them I want to mention because they predate Citizen Kane by 10 years, and to me they disprove the, the whole stigma that Citizen Kane redefined movies for everybody. I'm so sick of when people say that before Citizen Kane, film was barely an extension of live theater, but after Citizen Kane, it was its own separate art form. I see all these movies that came out before Citizen Kane. I was like, no, you could not do that in live theater. And two movies in particular. One is the German film M, directed by Fritz Lang, and the other Mm -hmm. one is the first sound version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Frederick March. Um, M with uh, Peter Lorre in the lead is probably not the first serial killer movie. In fact, I think even Hitchcock directed, directed some silent serial killer movies, but it's probably the most influential even to this day. Um, and it's another example, you know, going back to, you know, just briefly, you know, tying into my long-winded rant, anti-Marlon Brando rant from the last <laughs> podcast. You know, if you want an example of an actor who was doing great things in cinema long before Brando was even considering acting as a career, just watch Peter Lorre in M. He plays a child murderer in that movie, like the, mo- the lowest form of human life. And yet during that kangaroo court scene when people, when he's been caught and people are, you know, getting ready to execute him and he is on his knees pleading for his life about the voices in his head and how hard it is to ignore them. It's like, why do I feel sorry for this guy? I don't even feel sorry for Brando you know, screaming to his to his wife after he beat her, but this, I, I'm actually feeling sorry for a guy who kills innocent children. That takes mad acting skills. And on top of that, it has groundbreaking cinematography for its time. Like, how did they do that in the 1930s? And the use of sound design, especially uh, the uh, recurring motif of uh, uh, that classic piece, the uh, In the Hall of the Mountain King, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Every time uh, Peter Lorre's on on screen, ironically, even though he he couldn't whistle himself, so actually the director would whistle off screen for him. Just the, the idea of triggering terror in the audience just with a sound like every time you hear a certain sound you know something bad's going to happen and in this particular movie it's every time you hear somebody whistling da 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 it's like uh oh there he is it's the killer (laughs) protect your children so I think that's that movie I think really is the the most fundamental blueprint of all subsequent psychological thrillers that have been made since then. Your Psychos, your Silence of the Lambs, uh, your, you know, uh, Copycat, 
the bone collector, what uh, you know, and whatever else. And as for uh, the first sound version of Jekyll and Hyde with Frederick March, um, that one also had some you know, cinematography and special effects that could not possibly be replicated in uh, in live theater. Uh, the makeup transformations, especially, and this this is another reason why I think black and white has to come back as an art form because this is a technique that literally only works in black and white. Um, for the second half of the transformation, they would do uh, what are called lap dissolves, the same technique they use for the Wolfman tran uh, transformations, where they apply a little makeup at a time, take a picture, apply a little bit more, take a picture, and then you play all the pictures in sequence, and it looks like hair is growing, claws are growing, etc. But for the first half of the transformation, uh, they would film, they put red shade over parts of Frederick March's face, like parts of his forehead, around the eyes and his cheeks and so on, and they would film him under a red light so that it was invisible. But they would slowly switch the red filter to a green filter, which brings, green is like the light that exposes the most flaws, especially red, which is like the opposite end of the color spectrum. And as they would switch to green filter in the black and white film, his skin would look like it was turning dark while mm. he was, you know, while he was still completely moving fluidly and the camera was completely motion tracked to his face and he's, you know, convulsing and choking violently. And, and, uh, so in addition to the special effects and the split screen and uh, the opening POV shot, including a moment where he literally looks into the mirror and you don't see the camera probably because they did, uh, the, the trick of uh, uh, probably because the mirror wasn't really a mirror it may have been a duplicate set but it was still right. a clever idea I don't know if any movie had ever done that at the point at that point in time so yeah all these things you couldn't have possibly done in live theater and then on top of that you have a breathtaking performance by Frederick March who was Marlon Brando's idol by the way beautifully switches personalities between the two roles as Je Jekyll, he is a wonderfully sincere, kind-hearted man. You feel so sorry for him as he's being stifled by these outdated traditions of the time. Like he wants to marry his fiance, and you know, because he's so in love with her. And the her, his future father-in-law is like, "No, you're not getting married until the anniversary of of my marriage, of my own marriage, because any sooner would be positively indecent." Like, oh, come on, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> So, so you have that side of him, and then you have him as Hyde, where he is evil incarnate, and looking like he's having a friggin' ball with the role, even while wearing makeup that makes him look like a monkey. Mm -hmm. And the makeup, you know, again, you know, tying briefly to my anti-method acting rant, you know, another example of a guy who didn't let his problem become everybody else's problem. You know, he, he filmed with the makeup, he didn't complain, but after they finished, even though it was so bad, that by the end, by the time they finished the last transformation scene, he actually had to be rushed to the hospital to prevent the makeup from permanently scarring his face. So, and the makeup still looks amazing to this day. March is completely unrecognizable. So, so yeah, long story short, too late. Those are my examples of two horror movies that I think are extremely influential, or at least they should be, and should be held in highest regard from uh, by all subsequent filmmakers who dare to approach the horror genre. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andrew, how about you? Well, uh, more, 
two that kind of uh, come to mind that uh, you know, and you know, they might not be uh, into the horror. You know, you could go back and you can make arguments that they were considered, you know, thrillers or uh, one was actually one that Luke uh, got me into. It was called uh, uh, Night of the Hunter with uh, Robert Mitchum, mm-hmm. who uh, uh, he uh, plays uh, 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 Reverend uh, Harry. Uh, he, uh, he, he, uh, he, he plays uh, a, a preacher who finds out that uh, an inmate is uh, who's in jail with him hid ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars and he's a uh, and this uh, preacher is a serial murderer he uh, befriends uh, or uh, widows and he makes them uh, fall in love with him marry him then he kills them and uh, uh, makes off with their with their money, mm-hmm. and uh, he just you know this you know this uh, just despicable character. When uh, Robert Mitchum was actually uh, auditioning for the part, the director uh, actually came out and said, uh, uh, "We need this guy to be a real miserable piece of shit." And Mitchum rose his hand and said, "Present." <laughs> and, uh, and he just uh, uh, gives, uh, and, and that uh, character was—I think it's—he's on like the list of like greatest villains of all time. You mean the AFI list? Yeah. yeah. He's. Uh, a, side note: Robert Mitchum's the only actor who played two villains on that list. And the other one I'm about to mention yeah. uh, is uh, Kate Fear, where. Uh, he plays uh, Max, Katie. Max Katie, and uh, to uh, Gregory Peck's um, uh, attorney, and uh, you know, uh, in both uh, films, he plays just a uh, calm, you know, uh, devious uh, person, you know, a cold-blooded killer, but he has such a calm demeanor. Right. So, for the folks who wouldn't know, real quick. Um, this is Robert Mitchum version of Cape Fear. Any relation to the later one with De Niro? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there uh, is a. Uh, uh, there are a lot of similarities between the one uh, uh, in 1962 mm-hmm. uh, to the one in uh, 1991, uh, including cameos by both Robert Mitchum and uh, Gregory Peck and uh, Mark Balsam. And uh, uh, now, what makes Night of the Hunter uh, a little bit more scary for me is the fact that you know, Robert Mitchum is going after children, you know, young, right. you know, women and children, whereas you know, Kate Fury is going against Gregory Peck, which you know, yeah. I think Gregory Peck would hold his own against he's, Robert he's, Mitchum. Yes, <laughs> a, a little bit of miscasting. I say, yeah. I say, we have a celebrity death match. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if it was like a fight, like a you know, like a, a street, you know, eye gouging, hair pulling fight, Mitchell might have a chance. But if it was a, a boxing or a wrestling match, I'd, I'd give it to Gregory. Peck. Okay. Yeah. Technically, during the filming of, of their climatic fist fight, Peck accidentally hit Mitchum for real, and uh, 
Mitchum stayed in character and kept filming because he knew it was an accident, but afterward stumbled back to his trailer and collapsed from the pain. Uh, and Mitchum actually was a boxer in real life, so, yeah. so wow. he said between the two of them, Peck was definitely the stronger man. <laughs> yeah. So for me, um, every year for Halloween, it's, it's become this tradition for me to just watch movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and amongst all the movies that I usually set out, which are usually the same ones, three of them amongst this group is things that I would consider classics. And when I'm going for a classic horror film, my mind tends to drift back to the early 60s into the 50s, mm-hmm. that little wheelhouse. And the, the three that I've, I'm pretty religious with every year is House on Haunted Hill, Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Um, another Vincent Price, which is his version of House of Wax. That is a great movie. And the third being 1961, two or three, movie Carnival of Souls. Heard of it, haven't seen it yet. That one, amongst those three, is definitely my favorite. It's probably, since i seen it, one of my favorite horror movies. I love the movie, and I love the story behind it, which is that two guys who were just, they liked movies, and one of them was a writer, and if I'm getting this wrong, I'm sorry, but I think I'm right. One of them was a writer, one of them was a filmmaker, and they were, they filmed lawn tractor commercials in some podunk town for this company, and they'd film a tractor doing whatever it's doing, and one day they just decided to gather some money together, make a movie there's this cool abandoned carnival over here we'll get some you know we'll get an actress who can work for cheap this is the early 60s so things were a lot looser in terms of like paying and unions and all that jazz Mm -hmm. so they got an actress it's the only thing she's ever been in and she's amazing Mm -hmm. but she's never been anything else Um, like no other major roles and it's a fantastic movie that's very moody with a little surprise ending, I would definitely, definitely recommend it. And if I'm not mistaken, for you guys and for people listening, I think it is on YouTube because I think the movie is in the public domain. It's a, it's a, it's a rougher cut. Like a couple of years ago, the Criterion DVD series, they put out a version. Okay. And it's nice and clean and mm-hmm. HD. So the YouTube version might be rough if you find it, but the movie is fantastic. I would definitely recommend it. And the other two, like when I'm going for classic horror movie in my mind, like I like it to be a little fun. Yes. And House on Haunted Hill is tons of fun. Of course. Yeah. You know, it, the, Vincent Price horror films tend to be fun. Yeah. They, they always have a little, a very welcome element of dark comedy to them. Yeah. So those two are, are staples for me um, each year around this time in terms of classic. And I like the Universal Monsters too. Um, I haven't seen all of them, but a friend of mine and I like watched through... Remember when they came out with those box sets? Yes, I have like, a couple of them on DVD. All the Frankensteins, all the Wolfman. <laughs> and the one I had never seen Invisible Man mm-hmm. up until this point. And he's really... A, yeah, well, yeah. Like the first movie, he just walks around like knocking shit over. <laughs> like it, I, I'm watching, like he's really kind of a jerk. Actually, <laughs> when you think about it, 
and th- this is the probably the most intriguing thing. I'm pretty sure the first Invisible Man movie has the highest body count of any Universal monster movie from that. Man. I'm pretty sure he kills more people in that movie than Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman and the Mummy combined wow. Wow, in, in that movie alone. So yeah, that I didn't realize. That's pretty crazy. Have you guys seen Freaks? Let's go ahead. Todd oh, yeah. Brown and Bill. Yes, I have, and. That one is disturbing, just just because of the subject matter. Yeah. Uh, have Have you seen that one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Very, very, uh, very disturbing. Yeah. Uh, we may want to elaborate for those who aren't familiar. Yeah. It's a movie that literally takes place at a circus. Mm-hmm. So, as you can imagine, most of the main characters in the movie are outliers of society you have short people you have people who are missing limbs uh, people with very odd proportions so uh, and um, it's about how they are manipulated and abused by you know, quote unquote normal people right and, and uh, the the climatic uh, revenge scene we're not going to give anything away but let's just say it's the stuff that nightmares are made of um, <laughs> it is and for that reason the movie was banned yes you know yeah. because it was just too much mm-hmm. for people to handle but yeah, they did. They used all real performers who really were in those shows at the time, mm-hmm. and um, some of them were actors who were in other films too. Yeah. The the lead character, um, he was one of the Munchkins in Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. He was like when there were when a movie called for that kind of deal, he was one of the top actors yeah. in that field at yes. that time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that one the first time I watched it. it I went in not knowing what to expect. Mm-hmm. I wasn't as as up on classic horror movies as I would be now. Mm-hmm. So, not being as hip to what classic horror is and why the movie was banned, like, and just going in blind, mm-hmm. it was it was it was a trippy movie. Yeah, and with the uh, uh, whole, you know. Uh, you know, uh, the the whole, uh, you know, because they, you know, that's how what they did in carnivals. Uh, you, you know, they did. Uh, you know, they had those attractions. I mean, I, I think you know, still uh, to this day, I'm sure uh, you see uh, tents with you know, come and see this or come and see that. I seen. I didn't see the show, but I passed by a freak show at the Sussex County Fair I might if, if I was eight I was old <laughs> I was seven or eight was with my father and they had um, like the big tent set up with all like paintings of what was in there so they had the Popeye they had weird animals the two-headed cow and all the things but outside of the of the tent was this little guy sitting on a huge animatronic alligator. And he must have had like a pedal somewhere. Because he would like, he would crack the stage like where people were watching and the alligator's jaw would snap. Like when anybody would come close, he'd probably like hit this button or push a pedal and this big jaw would snap and everybody would jump back. And he was the barker getting you to come in and I was wigged out then, and I have not 
not that I go to a lot of plays, but I've not seen one since then. And that, when I, my memory of it is that it was rickety. Yeah. Like, it was just hanging on, mm-hmm. you know. That's how it appeared to me. But, yeah, that, and it's, it stuck with me. Yeah. It's the big, I remember the big painting of the Popeye. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know, the Popeye in, in those circus shows were the people who had the genetic ability somehow to, like, make their eyes bulge out of their heads. Mm-hmm. By like squeezing them somehow, yeah. they could do that. Yeah. So that and I remember is a huge painting of the Popeye that was like, nope, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on, pops. <laughs> so, I, yeah. Actually, you mentioning Todd Browning made me think of, just reminded me of another uh, bit of horror history that I think doesn't get talked about enough. So most people are, are at least from. I've at least heard of Todd Browning's Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious. Have either of you seen the Spanish version of Dracula? Yes. Um, okay. This is a perfect example of how you can work, how you can be creative even with a lower budget. So, this isn't as common in Hollywood today. You know, it. in fact, it hasn't been common for a very long time. But when the first... When Todd Browning directed his American version of Dracula with Bela Lugosi and uh, Dwight Fry in the leads, there was a Spanish uh, production that filmed their own version using the same sets. The American uh, you know, film crew would work during the daytime hours, and then the Spanish crew would film at night. Mm-hmm. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think they had like one-fifth of the budget of the American film. Mm-hmm. But oddly enough... Despite the fact that their lead actor, their Dracula, I think his name was Carlos Valerius, despite the fact that he doesn't hold a candle to Lugosi, in every other respect, the Spanish version is better because they were more creative. Just as an example, Dracula's introduction. In the American version, it's a static shot of bit from far away of Bela Lugosi walking down the stairs. But in the Spanish version, it's a POV shot from a low angle, slowly zooming up toward him, which is so much more dramatic. And then um, they were also, and this goes to show cultural differences, uh, the Spanish version is much less uh, heavily censored than the American version. In the American version, uh, you know, they'll talk about things but never show them. Like, Nina, where did you get those two bite marks on your neck? But you don't see them. Whereas in the Spanish version, you do. Uh, the Spanish actresses had way way more cleavage in, and showed so much more skin in their costume design. Um, the uh, confrontation between um, Dracula and Van Helsing plays out very differently. In the American version, it's mostly a battle of wills where Dracula tries to hypnotize Van Helsing and almost does, but fails because you know, Van Helsing's willpower is too strong and then he wards him off with a cross. In the Spanish version, it's a battle of wills and wits. Dracula hypnotizes, appears to hypnotize Van Helsing, and you think that he has him, but he knows that Van Helsing has the crucifix. So after Van Helsing appears to be dazed, Dracula lifts up his cape, and he says, put the crucifix in the, bo- in the box on the table and close it. And Van Helsing reaches down, and he just snaps the lid shut. It's in there, master. Dracula lowers the cape and there's the crucifix waiting for us. <laughs> that is ingenious. Yeah. Oh. So yeah. So yeah, it's if you find the universal box set of uh, the Dracula movies, they should have, you know, 
in addition to the original English version, they should have the Spanish version. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Yeah, I I picked up a DVD of that Dracula, and it wasn't part of that set, and it also had it. Yeah. So it's it's not super hard to find, and I, I, I enjoyed it, too, when I watched the Spanish version. Mm-hmm. But on, like, so let's shift gears a little bit here. Sure. And compare some of these classics to some of the new horror movies that are coming out, which... I think we all sort of agree to some extent or another that although not 100%, but in a way, horror has changed a lot. Yeah. And it's just lost some of its some of its pizzazz. Yes. Yeah. So this was a topic that you brought up, Andrew, so you could start us off. Yeah, I, uh, I just feel like um, some, uh, some films due to uh, whether it's uh, franchising or if it's uh, remakes, I just feel like they're uh, losing their edge. I mean, uh, you know, like uh, uh, one of those, uh, you know, one of the films that we've talked about a million times, Halloween. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, uh, John Carpenter. That's probably the what he's going to be most known for for mm-hmm. the rest of his life when he dies. At the Oscars during his random, there's going to be a picture of Michael Myers right next to him, but and he's probably going to hate it because he hated that movie. He uh, he uh, didn't uh, he he didn't like he you 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 know you watch uh, behind the scenes things with it. He, he said this is where we missed this. This is where we did this. Yeah, wrong. and he had and, a whole other and, plan. Yeah, for that series. Yeah, but because the Halloween, it wasn't supposed to focus on Michael Myers. Right. It was supposed to be a different. Like the uh, third one. Yeah. yeah, it was supposed to be an anthology, a Twilight Zone of, in its yeah. own right, so yeah. to speak. No, and uh, that, that's another, you know, they've they've tried bringing the Twilight Zone back uh, on, on numerous occasions. Yeah. You know, uh, they, they tried, uh, I think in the 80s they tried, I think they uh, tried again, you know, in the early 2000s. But it, it's something they just can't duplicate from the 60s. Yeah, and the writing was better. Yeah, just... Just those, like one of my favorite things to do when, uh, I yeah, I still do it uh, today. Like if uh, uh, I'll I'll just uh, watch old Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. You know, uh, you know they they have them on Netflix. You know, for those of you listening, you know if you the the old you know sixties, you know they they have all all those. You know, the Last Man on Earth and uh, you know the. Uh, 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 the uh, with with all those uh, uh, famous actors. That's that's another thing that was cool about Twilight Zone was it gave a uh, you know big actors you know another uh, medium. You know yeah. they, they come on just do uh, a different uh, uh, just do like a cameo like Burgess Meredith did a bunch of those. Yes. Yeah. Um, William Shatner was in some. Uh, Jack Robert, Jack Lugman. Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Yeah. Art Carney. Uh, yeah, that was a great one. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, uh, and uh, I, I just uh, feel that those, uh, uh, you know, when you uh, have things go on too long, you know, like if, if they did uh, Halloween, you know, like that with like a different villain or a different, you know, you know, however... 
uh, I think it would have been way better. Like, then you have you know Ron Zombie, you know, trying to reboot the series or re, you know, and you know if if you watch those ones, all he did was add more nudity and more blood. Yeah. From, I mean, I I'm I'm a Malcolm McDowell fan. I I admit that. I think he's a, I think he's a legend. I mean, uh, I mean the man's been acting in. Uh, movies, television, and theater for mm-hmm. half a century, or, or well, over half a century, and uh, you know he, you know, so that you know sparks your interest, but then you see it's just pretty much the same thing, just more uh, sex and blood, mm-hmm. and, which you know, uh, uh, you know ruins the, uh, you know, which you know doesn't go to you know the original. You know, uh, Jaws. Uh, Jaws. You know, I I consider Jaws a work. I don't know if you guys consider Jaws. Yeah, it, it is. It sure. is mostly. Yeah, you, know, you know, one of my, uh, uh, you know, you know, like I, I like last time I said, uh, you know, I have movies that I love to watch around the summertime. Jaws right. is one of those movies. That's for me. Good. I, I, I met just, Bruce. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he did. He was at, at, at Universal Studios. No, he was at a um, the Chiller. One year, oh, um, wow. the big convention, and they had him right at the door. Oh. And I'm looking like this, this shark looks familiar to me. Yeah. <laughs> and there he was, and you could like, you know, I didn't take a picture with him, but you could. Yeah. Hey, did he still have this this uh, quince skin dangling from his teeth? <laughs> I don't know. I don't oh. know. I wanted his autograph. But... <laughs> uh, and, and that's one, you know, uh, that, that was when Steven Spielberg was just getting started, and I just. Uh, thought I, I remember, and you know, that's another one. You, he, he said, there, "Oh, there, this went wrong. This was, this yeah. was bad." You know, I, I think it's a masterpiece. You know, uh, that's always how the artist is going to be. Yeah. yeah, I know. And you know, they, then they said they had issues with Robert Shaw. I guess I didn't. I guess he was struggling with an alcohol problem, and mm-hmm. like that that famous scene where they're talking about the Indianapolis. You know mm-hmm. where. Uh, uh, I guess they, I, I guess everybody in the room uh, wrote a bit of his speech. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Roy, uh, Roy Schreider, uh, Richard Dreyfus. Richard, Richard Dreyfus. You know, they they all wrote like Roy Schreider came up with a bit about uh, oh, those black eyes are like a doll's eyes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think I think he got an Oscar nomination for that. I don't. I don't think he did. Uh, maybe. Uh, so in terms of a trilogy, at what point did Jaws jump the shark? <laughs> I, I think uh, once it uh, lost, uh, it, it when the second one, you know, they they tried to, you know, even though the the sharks were awful, you know, the fact that they still had like the same family, you know, right. Roy Schreider, and I, I think they tried to bring Richard Dreyfuss back, but he he had begun, I think he had. He'd, he'd taken off by that right. that time. He'd uh, uh, done uh, uh, close, uh, close encounters. Close encounters. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was around the time. Right. And, so, yeah. and uh, you know, and even though the the sharks look worse, you know, uh, you know, because you can clearly tell in that one that they're mechanical. So probably in in mm-hmm. the uh, uh, but uh, uh, probably if not that one, probably the third one is one they. Especially the infamous 3D effects. Yeah. Now, is that Joy's Revenge? Uh, actually, that's the fourth one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Joy's Revenge is when the shark follows her. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. apparently sharks do that. Yeah, yeah apparently no. sharks fall. <laughs> Even no matter how great these characters are, sometimes their you know their personalities and what you can do with them really don't lend themselves to more than one story. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times you know, the sequel ultimately you know sometimes you know it just feels like they're you know trying to squeeze milk from a dead cow or that they're or that they're trying to do something that's so that's similar but different but they're recycling the name because they think that'll make it more marketable it, it, they are just as privy to the same hollywood corporate manipulation as every other genre and it and it's nauseating mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, 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 same thing with uh uh, American Psycho. American Psycho has a sequel. Yes, I, uh, which I haven't seen, but I've heard it was awful. Uh, um, I'm. Uh, I, I just. I, I just don't. I, I just feel that you know it. It you know the and the sequels can be good sometimes. I, I'm, I'm not you know trying to diminish sequels. You know. Oh yeah. You, you know, uh, Godfather Two was uh, very good. Hey, there are some great horror sequels. Uh, the. That Ouija origin of evil. The first Ouija movie is considered garbage, but that that prequel with uh, Ouija origin of evil, that's actually a really good movie. Mm-hmm. I saw that in theaters, and I was like, that was probably the first horror movie I got to see on the, because most of my favorite horror movies came out before I was born. That was probably the first one I remember seeing in the movies that actually genuinely ter- you know, creeped me out. Yeah. So. So yeah, that's an example of a sequel or prequel that that works. Mm. One of the, one of the reasons that horror movies have lost their pizzazz is that is that modern filmmakers have missed the point of what made the genre so attractive to audiences in the first place. There was a time when you know going back to those old Universal movies, which you know, and other movies from that time period, and even from you know, and even the Vincent Price movies, you know all this stuff from that time the reason it holds up so well even if you watch them from a modern lens and you think well this isn't scary they are still engaging because they had atmosphere and character development you still cared about the characters whether they lived or died and when the villains got their comeuppance it was cathartic because you because you loved to hate them but today it's all about the jump scares and how shocking it can be and it's like been there done that i don't care these guys and and it can go you know and again to all the different subgenres. like i don't know if you two have seen uh, the alien versus predator movies yeah okay yeah so the first predator movie with arnold schwarzenegger is a classic for a reason the characters in that movie are all really likable mm-hmm. most of them anyway and you don't want them to die and then uh, you know, the first two alien movies and even the third one to an extent are great because ellen ripley is you know, such an iconic character and oh. And they, you really do fear for her life and the lives of those around her while she's dealing with these monsters. But the Alien vs. Predator movies, those two, to me, when you're making a movie with any kind of horror icon monster, you have to tightrope how much uh, screen time and attention you give to the monsters and how much you give to the humans. And those movies, to me, are the epitome of what goes wrong if you lean too far in either direction. The first Alien vs. Predator movie gave too much screen time and attention to the monsters, so the humans were completely disposable. I didn't care if they lived or died. Now, some people say that movie's bad because it's PG-13. It's like, 
dude, even if you add a ton of blood and gore, it's not going to make it scary. The, the characters are still disposable. Like, it's like, oh no, not, what was his name again? Yeah, <laughs> right. Half the characters don't even know their names until they die. It's laughable. Yeah, exactly. uh, but this, and then the second movie, they gave too much screen time and attention to the humans and not enough to the monsters, so the monsters felt shoehorned in. Even though they had been planning it as an Alien versus Predator movie from the outset, it felt like they wrote the script with humans and they're like, huh, this is boring. How do we make this interesting? Oh, let's make it an Alien and Predator movie. That'll make him come to see it. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that's the other problem. And uh, and at, and then the jump scares that you know that are so oversaturated and everything. I think if I could be, this is a little out of character for me. If I could be Go a little, little vulgar for a minute, I want to quote i'm gonna or paraphrase one of my favorite internet critics uh chris stuckman he said horror movies are like having sex and jump scares are like premature ejaculation i can see that <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like it's so much better when you actually take the time to build up <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry i hope i didn't gross anybody out too much that's i usually don't go in that direction but it's so apt this uh, is a family podcast. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Can you edit it out, please? <laughs> We're gonna. You're being censored. We're canceling. <laughs> you're being canceled. <laughs> so as we wind down towards the end of this episode here, let's get some. Let's get these people some good horror movie recommendations. Okay. Okay. And, um, I'll start and give you guys time to think about it. Okay. Because I already have them downloaded in my head. <laughs> so my classic recommendation is I'm going to go right back to Carnival of Souls. If you, I think that just prepare to have a little bit of patience because the movie takes its time. It's very moody and, and melodic in its own way. But I think it's worth it. That would be my classic recommendation for a new horror movie is there's a few that go by this name, but I believe this one came out in the late 2000s, if not early 2010s, a movie called Trick or Treat, spelled trick with a little lowercase r, treat. Um, the main character is a little pumpkin-headed guy. And what I like about this movie personally is that the villain of the movie, the the... The, the plot line of the movie even, which is just not, because there isn't just one villain, punishes those who disrespect Halloween. And I could appreciate that, you know, because, you know, one example in that movie is a group of young teenagers invite out the quiet girl in the neighborhood who's very nerdy and quiet and shy. They invite her out just to scare her. You know, they just to torture her. And then eventually this group of kids gets their comeuppance. And the, the original little girl who was targeted is left free to roam. I like that idea of, you know, respecting the holiday, respecting the tradition of something that goes way back. And the twist of being punished if you don't respect it. I, I enjoy that angle of that film very much. And i seen it way after it originally came out. i seen it on DVD. And fell in love with it, and it eventually became a staple into my Halloween y time fall <laughs> movie viewing. Andrew, go for it. Oh, uh, for my, 
my classic one, I'm going to go with the uh, family-friendly theme. I'm going to go with uh, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Nice. I mean, you know, that's a movie, you know, you can uh, watch with, uh, you know, you uh, with your kids, you know, and, you know, you have those great, you know, classic uh, uh, horror, cre- you know, you got the Frankenstein, uh, Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula, Got Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, and of course, you know, everybody's favorite Abbott and Costello. You know, uh, you know, it's you know, you have the you know the wonderful humor. You, know, you got uh, uh, Costello's great ad ad libbing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and you know, the the Frankenstein monster trying not to smile, <laughs> trying not to laugh at uh, uh, Costello's antics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, for my uh, newer film, I'm going to go with American Satan. Uh, it's a um, uh, uh, it deals with uh, uh, the devil's influence on the music industry, and uh, you know there you always have those theories about you know the the devil uh, being involved in the music industry or the film industry. You know, it it does uh, it goes right in with hand in hand with that. You know, you have a rock, young rock band who want to make it big. You know, you have a great young cast uh, of uh, musicians. It's something some of you uh, musicians out there will appreciate is they all really play their own instruments. You know, they're uh, you know which I appreciate, and I'm not a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, uh, then. The young cast is supported by veteran actors like Malcolm McDowell, who I already talked about earlier, who's a great veteran actor. Uh, Bill Duke, who's a great character actor. Uh, Denise Richards, who's been acting for years. Uh, And uh, it's, you know, uh, a great uh, mix of, you know, of getting what you want and... You know, find you know, and finding out that it might not have been all you wanted for. It might not have been worth the cost that you wanted. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never, I've not heard of that last one. I'm gonna check that out myself. Oh, and it came out in 2017, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just want a quick note that I think Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein may have been my baptism into the horror genre oddly <laughs> enough so yes I wholeheartedly support that recommendation uh, for classic uh, just to um, because this is a very obscure movie and just to demonstrate how widespread the horror genre is this one is a horror western of sorts um, it's called The Stalking Moon it's a horror slash psychological thriller with our hero Gregory Peck he plays a uh, an army ranger in the early in the uh, uh, post Civil War era of the United States, uh, he helps an army troop uh, capture a group of Apaches, and he discovers that among them they have a white woman played by Eva Marie Saint, mm-hmm. and her who has apparently been their captive for years, and she has you know a mixed uh, breed son, and uh, she insists on going with Peck because. Her, the father, her rapist, her rapist and the father of her child is a legendary Apache warrior named Salvahi. Um, and uh, he is, 
you know, Apache warriors on general principle are scary because they practically wrote the book on guerrilla tactics, guerrilla spelled G-U-E-R, and they, and, you know, they practically invented that style of combat, and this guy is exceptionally skilled. He's like the Rambo of Apache warriors, and he wants his son back. And that concept alone should make the movie scary, and on top of that, in true horror movie fashion, just to up the mystery, you never, you hardly ever see the guy's face, and he doesn't have a single line of dialogue in the entire movie. He's like a ghost. Oh, wow. And so, and there's also a very young uh, Robert Forrester in the movie who plays uh, Gregory Peck's protege. So it ultimately ends up with a, you know the classic scenario of a small group of people in a cabin being attacked by this unseen stalker who can attack them whenever he wants and just them trying to survive as long as they can. So yeah, it's a Western, but don't let that put you off. It is a genuinely suspenseful film and great acting, great character development and humor. So highly recommended. Uh, Modern, uh, this movie came out within the past three years, I think. I think it's called Scary, Scary Stories. It's uh, based on a young uh, young adult book series, I guess, uh, from... Scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, scary stories. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, I never read the books, unfortunately, so this movie was completely new to me. But you don't have to be familiar with the books to enjoy the movie. Uh, it's you know, kids, you know, act, you know, coming across a haunted house with a, I think a book and discover, and then accidentally unleashing the horror within, and they're all systematically attacked by their worst fears. And, again, seeing the whole thing, experiencing these terrors from the children's perspective just makes it all the more terrifying. And the child acting is all brilliant, great music, great special effects. You know, so it, just an example of a, a modern horror that really, really captures the essence of the old, the old classics. Very cool. Well, on that note, fellas, we are at the end of the time. But I appreciate you guys doing this episode, and you will be back soon. Yes. Happy <laughs> okay, and that was that episode of Planet Shivers. I want to thank you guys for listening. I'm very excited to be in October, fall. The leaves have been beautiful. I think that um, this whole month of podcasts is going to be a lot of fun. We got more Halloween and horror theme ones coming with fun guests. And some surprise episodes all mixed in. So it's going to be a good month. Keep your eyes peeled for more episodes of Planet Shivers on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, the podcast app, and Google Play, as well as YouTube with video. Also, peel your eyes even more for new episodes of Insomnia Art that are going to be on the Albert Shivers YouTube channel, especially once I get my permanent setup for filming it's going to be unbelievable. Well, all that said, hope you guys are having a good week. Hope you enjoy the rest of your week. And we will talk next time on the Planet Shivers podcast. Be healthy. Be happy. Try to go outside and enjoy something.